welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. And today on Plenary Session, you're in store for a bonus episode. This is part two of my lecture series to the fellows. Now, during the episode, you're going to hear I use the whiteboard a fair bit. And unfortunately, we didn't capture what I wrote on the board. However, supporters of this podcast on Patreon will get access to the slides and they'll be able to follow along a little bit better than I think if you don't have access to the slides. But that's the best we can do. So enjoy this bonus episode, a lecture I gave in the fall of last year. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, let's start. Part two. Um... Okay, where did we leave off? In the last episode, uh, we talked about um, surrogate endpoints, where they came from, the cutoffs, the FDA's use of them, uh, and that's pretty much it in the first part. Okay, so in this part, we'll talk about crossover, control arms, and a little bit of background before we, we start. Okay, so um, I think it's important to sometimes be reminded of like the landscape of all cancer therapies. So what would happen if I made a graph of every person in 2019 who will die of cancer, okay? So how many people is this in the United States? You know? It's about 600,000 people will die of cancer this year in the United States. And what does it look like, the kind of therapies we give these patients? How many of these patients are eligible for genome-targeted therapies? So these are, these are the drugs where you test for a molecular alteration, and if you have it, you drug the molecular alteration. So I would consider... I would consider ALK like, and crizotinib and, and genome-targeted therapy. Um, but I did, we don't put, um, we don't put like Olaparib in this bucket because you have germline defects in BRCA, but Olaparib targets PARP. So it's not exactly that mechanism of action, although there is some sort of logic to it. All the checkpoint inhibitors and all the cytotoxics. Okay, so this a few years ago, and first we looked at uh, all the, the genome-targeted ones. And so I think the, the first thing that stands out at you is that like 92% of patients with advanced or metastatic cancer are ineligible for all, um, all the genome-targeted therapies. 8% are eligible. Okay, what are the targets? Enacidinib, what's a target? Dibrafenib, trametinib, okay, crizotinib. It's a, it's, a, it's a dirty TKI, it has many targets, but FLT3 is one. Crizotinib, seritinib, electinib, brigatinib. That's ALK, that's not all ROS. Uh, trastuzumab, HER2, venmorafenib, dibrafenib, trametinib, cobimetinib, BRAF-MEC, erlotinib, afatinib, gefitinib, osimertinib, EGFR, trastuzumab, lapatinib, pertuzumab, and TDM1, HER2, imatinib, um, BCR-ABLE, and imatinib, dasatinib, nilotinib, panatinib, basudinib. Oh, this is BCR-ABLE. This must be um, 
uh, CKIT for GI stromal tumor. Okay, so I guess one thing that jumps out here is that the biggest chunks of this, 3% of all the 8% people eligible is the EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. So it's just driven by the fact that that's a prevalent cancer. And that even though, you know, you may think a lot of foot three AML, uh, it's actually like in the grand scheme of things, very few people have AML and very few people have foot three ITD AML. And then the other thing is, as much as there's advances for new targets, most of the new drugs are second or third molecules in the same target. Okay, so then we did it for checkpoint inhibitors, and here the, it looked a lot better. 43% were eligible, and 56% are not eligible for checkpoint inhibitors. And of course, the most common is non-small cell lung cancer, because that is the huge amount of, pop, the pop, maybe 25% of cancer deaths. Small cell lung cancer just has the atezolizumab, you know, the new data for atezo, and also second-line Pembro Nevo approvals. Uh, things like primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, Merkel cell car carcinoma, they're kind of cute approvals, but they don't affect many, many people. And melanoma, even though that's probably where it works the best, it's only 1.5% of all cancer deaths. And then we did it for cytotoxics, so we find 80% are eligible for cytotoxics. Yeah, so, and, and of the 80%, 32.2% have tumor shrinkage. It's just based on the tissue type and if it's recommended by NCCN. So this is like, you have to have lung cancer and the mutation. And this is you have to have lung cancer and a PDL1 cutoff. But now it goes to PDL1 0, so it's everyone with lung cancer, basically. Everyone with non-small cell lung cancer. And small cell, there's no, there's no inclusion criteria. And here there's no inclusion criteria other than you have to have the disease where that's recommended. Okay, so it's a lot more. Let me show you it over time. I think people talk about the genome-targeted therapies are having an, a, a huge uptake and exponential growth. And we plot it out year by year. The blue line is the percent of people eligible for if the drugs were free and everyone is tested. And the yellow line, or the orange line, is the percent of people who will have a response to these drugs. And you see it's just kind of 1% per year linear growth. So this idea that like we're taking off and that we have much more than we did before, I think is kind of a false notion. And right, since from here to here we add in the TREC fusion, you know, so larotrectinib, but that's of course, it's so small, it's just gonna be right on that line. It's not gaining any faster. And we'll add RET soon we'll add some other things okay here's checkpoint inhibitors what was the first checkpoint inhibitor approved in 2011 it be for what cancer melanoma okay so this is it be and then what happened in 2014-15 pembro in not in non-small cell lung cancer and then it's just kind of creeped up since then and the other thing worth pointing out here is this the response rate here here, the response rate is coming in more shallow over time, and this is going up. You see, you notice that? So in other words, the tumor types that we're adding to the drug label have lower and lower response rates. So what's the response rate of Pembro in uh, melanoma? No, it's higher. It's like 40, 50%. What's the response rate of Pembro in GE junction cancer? It's like 10%. Yeah. So, so basically, you're adding approvals here. And what, what I think will happen is this may start to plateau, and then eventually it may start to dip, but the orange line will start to stay the same. So as you figure out new biomarkers to figure out who to give the drug to, you will actually lower the eligibility, but keep the responders the same. These are all patients who die. And the reason I use patients who die is that all of these drugs are typically used in advanced and metastatic setting, so I don't want to use any, and, and almost all those people will ine inevitably have progression. And here's cytotoxics. I can't do it over time with cytotoxics because the data is too tricky. But 
the cumulative number of people who respond to cytotoxics is here and the cumulative number of people who are eligible for those treatments. So I think it's just a good reminder that at the end of the day, even though we talk so much about these and these, we still rely on these in our clinic. And if you probably look at your VA panel and you just pick the last 50 people you saw and look at what you're giving them, that's probably what you're gonna find in your VA panels. Okay, so I think precision genomics sounds great, but applies to small numbers of patients. Oh, this was from my Pfizer talks. So I say small market share. Uh, <laughs> most hit the same targets. Um, cytotoxics sound outdated, but they have tremendous market share and result in large amounts of cumulative tumor shrinkage. And hot drugs like IO quickly establish what tumors they work in. So what I wanted to mention here was, in 2012, we had the two publications in the New England Journal of Medicine. There were two large phase one studies of PD-L1 and PD-1 inhibitors by BMS. And it showed basically that there were responses in kidney cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, uh, melanoma. And all this time since then, uh, all of these changes are basically figuring out the where to put them in those tumor types. Almost all of the tumor types where it works really well, we knew about that in the phase one trial. And so this has just been kind of refining over time. Okay, a little bit more background. What is a good drug? We talk a lot about how Gleevec is a good drug. And I think here is the proof Gleevec is a good drug. This is if you're a woman who's age 55 who was diagnosed in Sweden with chronic myeloid leukemia based on the year you were diagnosed. So a woman diagnosed in 1974, a woman diagnosed in 2010, okay? The dotted blue line says if you're a 55-year-old woman in Sweden in 1974 and you're diagnosed with CML, I guess let me first do the yellow. You're diagnosed with CML, your life expectancy is shown on the yellow line. You have a median life expectancy of like three to four years, okay? If you're that same woman diagnosed in 1974 in Sweden and you didn't have CML, your life expectancy would be 27 years. Fair enough? Okay. And now the gap is like two years apart. Okay? So what closed the gap? Imatinib. Yeah, so it took a condition with median life expectancy three to four years, and the distance here is still like 20 years. So 20 years of life lost. And it's closed the gap to like two years. You know, I always hear this statistic people say that is like heart disease is, uh, women are more afraid of breast cancer than they are of heart disease, but heart disease is the number one cause of death. But it's a misleading figure because the, I mean, what you really care about is years of life lost, okay? And by years of life lost, I think for women in the ages of 40 to 55 who are fearful of breast cancer, it is the number one thing that, you, that is years of life lost for that age group. So in fact, the fear is proportionate to the years of life lost, so it's not an irrational thing. And heart disease is, of course, it's what kills a lot of us, but you know, in the ages of 80 or something like that, many times. Okay, so what year did imatinib come out in Sweden? 2001, okay, you've heard me say this before. Okay, why does the curve start going up before 2001? Mm. That's right, people who got it in 2001, if you're diagnosed in 1996, maybe 40% of the people were alive in 2001, and they started taking it, and their life expectancy was so improved that it starts pulling the curve up in the years prior to when the drug comes out. So that's how good it is. What about, your, what about above average drugs? This is, this is, I've made this graph. This is, but this is, I think, pretty accurate. We hear a lot about how those ALK drugs are super good. What's the median, the median survival in like the electinib study? I think they're saying that's gonna be like five years, median survival, you know? Okay, pretty good. What is the survival of ALK, non-small cell lung cancer, in an era before electinib? Was it the same as everyone with non-small cell lung cancer or different? Different, it was actually slightly higher. I find a paper that says it was 26 months back, back in the day. 
back in like 2006. And then I plot, I, I, I also want to make one more point. There's all this slope here, even when nothing's happening. And there's a slope here in life expectancy. This is the secular trend in mortality. Things are getting better over time. So when people say that like, oh, you know, Selenexor has a five-year survival better than what we would expect. Five-year survival is going up over time, even if the drug added nothing. Okay, so that's something important to know. Okay, so here's ALK drugs. This is every ALK drug used in sequence in 2018. Uh, and here's where we start. So maybe you have, you know, huge years of life lost, and now you have huge years of life lost. So I guess I would say, do you consider this drug and this drug to be equally good targeted agents? No, I think that it's clearly not the case. And people call these drugs game changers because they have dramatic responses, but they're not enduring. And we still have like maybe 15 years, 17 years of life lost. And people who get ALK rearranged lung cancer are actually younger than average cancer patients. So it, I think there's a lot of truth to this figure. And this is, yet, this is an above average drug. What about average drugs? I think I showed you this in the first figure, the first talk. But the average drug, 71 consecutive drugs for solid tumor, median improvement in PFS was 2.3 months and 2.1 months for OS. OK, randomized trials. Oh, this is something you don't know about, the history of, of stem cell transplant for breast cancer. Um, so in the late 1970s early and throughout the 1980s and into the early 1990s, uh, we knew that you can use combination cytotoxic chemotherapy and you can cure some cancers. You can cure testicle cancer, Hodgkin's cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Why can you not cure breast cancer? Um, and the hypothesis was that you're simply not able to deliver enough dose. So if I gave a lethal dose of chemotherapy to a woman with breast cancer, uh, I might be able to eradicate all the tumor, but unfortunately I would kill off the hematopoietic system and the person would die. But what if I could collect their stem cells, put that on ice, give them the lethal dose of chemotherapy and then reinfuse the stem cells, just as we do with a melphalan autotransplant or a beam autotransplant. What if I could apply that principle to breast cancer? And this took off. And there are so many case reports, not case reports, but so many phase two studies like this that show what happens when you do transplant for these patients. Um, by the late 1980s, it was done a few hundred times per year, but by the mid-1990s, it was 1,500 times per annum. And they lobbied and received reimbursement, uh, and so from some insurers, not, not all insurers, and it became kind of a cottage industry. You could make a lot of money doing these. Altogether, 40,000 women were treated off protocol in the United States, which is like, I guess, like a lot of people. Um, and, and we did it not only for women with metastatic cancer, but women with stage two, stage three, and inflammatory breast cancer. So I guess it, maybe we could put inflammatory breast cancer aside because it's you know, highly aggressive. But stage two cancer, a woman with like in 1994 with a stage two cancer is getting an auto breast transplant for adjuvant. That seems a bit, a bit strong. And of course, in the first of these, the first paper that came out was a paper from the South African group that was presented at ASCO in the mid-1990s that was found to actually be a fraudulent paper and was later retracted. But the first good study came out from the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group in 2000 and it compared conventional dose chemotherapy against high dose chemotherapy plus stem cell transplantation. And this is a randomized control trial. And it finds that there is in fact no difference between the two curves in terms of survival, in terms of toxicity, 96% leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, 60% anemia, 30% infection, 25% diarrhea versus 55, you know, much lower. And here they're only showing grade three, four. They're not showing any grade. Because back in the day of cytotoxics, people put more of a premium on 3-4 toxicity. So what's the lesson here? 
lesson here is, I wish I, one slide is missing, but if you look at these kind of case reports, they will show you a Kaplan-Meier curve that looked like, it looked like at three years, there's a plateau and 25% of people were alive. That's what the phase, that's what the trial, that's what this phase two study looks like. And people thought that that was better than historical controls. So just yesterday, or just this week, Wednesday, in the New England Journal, they published Selenexor, which is that nuclear export inhibitor. And in combination with dexamethasone and multiple myeloma, it's an uncontrolled study. And the median overall survival is like 10 months in that study. And the person who says, who says that, um, the person who was commenting on it says that it's an unprecedented median overall survival. But of course, there's like no control arm. And you know, it's kind of the same fallacy here, that you don't really know what the therapy adds until you have the control arm. And here, when you did the randomized study, there's no benefit at all. And now they've done, they've ended up doing six randomized studies and in pooled analysis, there was no benefit. And so it's completely fallen out of favor. No one does it, it's kind of, a, it's a dead practice. I guess I'd say that like in some of these phase two studies that came out, they were often heavily pretreated. They were, they were women who have progressed through multiple lines of therapy, or they were women who had high risk features on the cancer. And the, the other thing about heavily pretreated is that point I was trying to make, which is that heavily pretreatment is a kind of a marker for indolent biology because my, many myeloma patients do not live long enough to get eight prior lines of therapy. How many of your lung cancer patients in your VA clinic have gone seven prior lines of therapy? Not many. But there are some in some of these fa early phase studies that have seven lines that are entering on the eighth, the eighth line of therapy. Okay, the other bit of history you need to know, I think, why randomization is essential, is promacytobom. So in the 1960s and 70s, we used CHOP for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then in the 1970s and 80s at the NIH, they pioneered a new chemotherapy regimen called promacytobom. And you can look it up. Do I have the drugs in it? You can look up the drugs, but it's like eight drugs given. It's like a hyper-CVAD kind of laundry, laundry basket list of cytotoxic drugs put in there. And what Rick Fisher and colleagues, and I believe Rick Fisher is still the CEO of Fox Chase, and Dan Longo is the deputy editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and he monk, and Davida is the author of the book. And you know, so it's like a who's who list of oncology. So they, found, they knew that CHOP had an overall survival, we think it's about 50%. In the, in the late 19, in the 1980s, early 1980s. CHOP is 50% overall survival. We are giving promacytobom to 190 patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we have a complete response rate of 86%, and the survival plateau was 70%. So we have a 70% overall survival plateau, whereas in overall, with CHOP, it's 50%. So they're saying we can improve survival by 20 percentage points. So that sounds like a lot. And do you need a randomized study? And uh, there's another great example somebody told me. We were talking about the IDH1 inhibitor in leukemia. You know the uh, median survival of the IDH1 inhibitor, ivocidinib, in that trial by DiNardo in New England Journal? It's 8.8 .8 months. But somebody was like, well, that's pretty good because these are relapsed refractory AML patients. 8.8 .8 months is really good. And then I was like, well, what's the natural history of IDH1 relapsed refractory? And they found a DiNardo abstract a few years before that said the median survival was 4.8 months. And so then I was saying, okay, well, you know, I showed you that the average drug is 2.1 month survival benefit in a randomized study. And you're telling me that one uncontrolled study is 8.8 .8, and the historical uncontrolled study is 4.8. So that's a difference of four. How much of that four is just attributed to the fact that there's this secular trend in time? And how much of the four is attributed to what your drug is actually doing? 
And I think the same question is here. How much of this 20 percentage points is attributable to the fact they're choosing patients more wisely in this study because they're at the NIH? So they're not getting a, a de novo lymphoma that presents to your ER. They're getting somebody who's being referred for a clinical trial. And if you're going to refer somebody from, say, I don't know, University of Maryland to the NIH, they have to be stable enough to wait like two weeks before they can get therapy. You're not going to be able to refer the person who's got rip-roaring lymphoma, whose LDH is 7,000. Um, you can only refer people who probably have slightly more indolent biology. So maybe this is not really comparable to this. Also, there are secular trends in mortality. So these are, they should have given them caution, but it didn't. And they ended up doing a phase three randomized control trial comparing CHOP to promacitabom and two other kind of novel combinations. And this was the time to, this was overall survival. Absolutely the same. And this was where that promacitabom plateau should have come at the 70 percentage point mark. But of course, in the randomized study, when you actually take away the selection bias of the patients, there's no difference at all. And um, when I gave this talk a few years ago, there was still enthusiasm for all these other things we were doing, like adding Velcade to RCHOP or substituting Velcade for Oncovin for ABC subtype, you know. But that, was, that failed in the Remodel B study. So I always said, remember this, it might not work. Uh, we had the Ibrutinib study that's failed. We've had uh, R squared CHOP uh, that failed. Uh, and now we have like the RCHOP venetoclax study that's still pending. But pretty much it's been very difficult to defeat. And the only advance over CHOP has been the addition of rituximab in like the last 20, 30 years. We had our epoch, which is supposed to be CHOP, but it failed too in the CLGB study. Okay, before we talk about crossover in oncology, let's do a thought experiment in cardiology because it'll help you see the, the truth. Okay, imagine I have like a handheld ultrasound probe and I can put on someone's heart and it tells me how much plaque is in their LAD. And it's like super accurate. Who knows, maybe we'll have this someday. So I put it on him and it says he's got 0.4 millimeters of plaque in his LAD. And let's say we know that the plaque goes from like 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, and 0.6 is like death. Okay? <laughs> there, you know, you probably, there's probably some truth to this, that there is like a progression of atherosclerosis, and maybe there's someday a handheld test that can figure it out. Okay, now let's say I come up with a new drug, and my new drug is supposed to regress the plaque and I can track it with this to like make sure it's working. I can track it with my probe, and it's supposed to lower the risk of death, okay? And let's say I initially want to do a randomized trial to bring my new drug to market, and I decide I want to take people with 0.4 millimeters of plaque or greater and randomize them to my new drug or placebo. Okay? What do you think? Is that a reasonable study? I'm, I'm, I want to bring my drug to market. Randomized trial, I have a new device, I've done a natural history study, I know that there's a progression of atherosclerosis to death, and I decide I'm going to randomize people to my drug or placebo, uh, or maybe we'll say my drug plus all the other care, like statins, aspirin, whatever you want, plus, plus all the other care, standard of care. Okay? What endpoint should I choose? Okay, CV death. Okay, that's a good one. MIs. Okay. What else? all-cause death. Uh, yeah, there, that's the right answer. So they would probably use MACE, which is Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events, which is a composite of cardiovascular death, MI, stroke. They'll probably use MACE. 
They probably use MACE, and then they probably also as a secondary endpoint measure overall mortality. Uh, plaque size, I think, will be a problem because it's a surrogate endpoint, and this is the, uh, this is the FDA cardiology. They're a little bit more, they want harder endpoints. But it might be a good, like, phase two study to show if you can regress plaque. Okay, so MACE or cardiovascular events. Um, why, would I, why would I choose 0.4 or higher and not choose 0.2 or higher? What's the logic of that if I'm a drug developer? If I, if I start enrolling a lot of people with like more indolent biology or like more early stage disease who are probably at lower risk of cardiovascular events, it's just gonna take me a lot longer to get, the, get where I want, to get the, the deaths enough difference in the arms to show there's a benefit. Okay, so I wanna kind of pick some sicker people, but I don't wanna pick them maybe too sick, I wanna pick them at a point where I think I can actually intervene on it. Okay, so it's actually quite logical. What endpoint do you want to measure? Okay. Now what if I was doing this study and I said, when everyone, I'm gonna follow these people with my handheld ultrasound, when everyone gets to 0.5 millimeters of plaque, I'm gonna cross them all over to the drug. I'm gonna give everyone the drug then. What do you think? So which arm do you think will get there faster? The drug arm or the placebo? We'll get to 0.5 faster. Placebo, yeah. Oh. We think we'll get there faster because we think that this will regress the plaque. Okay, so when everyone gets to 0.5, we'll cross everyone over. What do you think? It's gonna make it harder to see a difference. Okay. Yeah, I think it's gonna, muddy, it's gonna muddy the water in a lot of ways. You may get a trial with no difference at all, and then you don't know anything about the drug, uh, and it's, it's really gonna be difficult. Now, after a short period of time, everyone's on the drug. If there's some adverse event or sudden cardiac death, that signal's gonna get washed out too, potentially. So I think you wouldn't do this because it's a novel drug, and you wouldn't cross people over. Okay, now let's say I run the trial and I didn't do that. I didn't cross people over. That would've been foolish. Overall survival is positive for the drug. So in 0.4 millimeters or higher, drug in addition to standard of care is better than placebo in addition to standard of call. All cause mortality, it's a slam dunk, big benefit, okay? Now I'm the drug maker, I can start selling to 0.4 millimeters or higher. Anyone out there in clinic, 0.4 millimeters or higher, you can add my new drug to your regimen. Fair enough? Okay, now let's say I'm the drug maker, I'm making a billion dollars a year from selling this, now I start to think, how can I get this drug into more people's hands so that they benefit from my life-saving drug, okay? Or, and I make more money, okay? So what's the, what's the trial you want to run now? We already know it works in 0.4 millimeters. We want bigger market share. Yeah, so pick people with smaller initial plaque size. So let's say I run, I run a trial of 0.1 millimeters of plaque. Okay, and probably the reality is like all things in life, if you could look at like a population distribution of plaque, it probably would be like more people are here and like less people are here, right? Like something like that kind of distribution. You know, there's just a lot more people with 0.1 millimeters of plaque around because it's probably getting like everyone from like the age of 20 on. Okay, so now I do a new study with 0.1 millimeters of plaque. I randomize patients to drug or placebo. Okay, fair enough. In addition to standard of care. When the patients reach 0.4 millimeters in the control arm, what should I do? I've already proven it's life-saving when you get to 0.4. Now I wanna get a bigger market share. I have to test the question, should I routinely administer it to people with 0.1 plaque versus administer it to people with, who, who have 0.1 plaque when they get to 0.4 because that's the new standard of care, right? It's a trial of whether or not it should come a little bit earlier versus a little bit later. But I can't withhold it from that group coming later. That would be unethical because it is now the standard of care. He's exactly right. Okay, so they should get the drug. Let's say overall survival is negative from this trial. How do you interpret that? 
doesn't. Earlier administration doesn't have an advantage. And so in the clinic, if you have somebody with 0.2 millimeters of plaque, you're not going to give it. You're going to wait till they get to 0.4, then you're going to start giving it. Exactly right. Okay, perfect. So we agree on crossover. This is crossover, and it's cardiology, so it's like super clear. <laughs> so I think the principle that we have learned is that sometimes crossover was desirable, the second situation, and sometimes it was problematic. Okay, when was it problematic? Situations in which the fundamental efficacy of the experimental drug has not been established in the first study. I have no idea if this drug helps or hurts. I, I don't know if it works or not. It's never proven itself. Crossover is problematic because now I cannot tell if the drug is winning or losing because everyone's on the drug at a very short period of time. Where is crossover desirable? Situations in which the experimental drug has already proven benefit in a latter line of therapy and is standard of care in the latter line. That's where crossover is. You need the crossover. And then it turns out you can get crossover and you cannot get crossover or the investigators cannot tell you whether or not it happened. So we always talk so much about crossover in these clinical trials. I think it's, and some people say, is it good or is it bad? I think it depends. Are you in this situation or are you in this situation? So let's try to go through some examples in all of these situations. And then of course, if you're in the second study and you do cross people over, that's desirable. And if you're in the second study and you don't cross people over, it's undesirable, it's bad. And if you're in the first study and you cross people over, it's undesirable. Okay, so let's go some examples. Cipolucil T. What class of medication is Cipolucil T? Cancer vaccine. Is it a cancer vaccine like the, like the HPV vaccine? It's a cancer therapeutic vaccine. A cancer therapeutic vaccine takes a bit of cancer and tries to sensitize the body against a cancer antigen so the body mounts an attack against cancer over time. It's meant so the body is like going to rev up the immune response against cancer. It's like a checkpoint inhibitor that doesn't work. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, but I make that joke, but in the last 50 years of cancer vaccines, how many cancer vaccine, therapeutic vaccines have come to the US market? How many have you ever seen? You've probably given none in your VA clinic. Uh, yes, it's in trials, the, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but TVEC's not a, is a vaccine? It's an oncovirus. It's oncolytic, it's a, it direct, I guess, okay. Somebody tell me after this if TVEC's a vaccine. Okay, but I guess one thing worth knowing is we've been trying this for many, many years. And to my knowledge, I think Cipolucil T is the only cancer therapeutic vaccine that we've ever approved, okay? For castrate-resistant prostate cancer. This is the trial. A double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center phase two trial. That sounds good. Sounds like a perfect study. 512 patients in two to one ratio to get Cipolucil T or placebo. Why do they do two to one? Uh, recruitment, it's supposed to be a recruitment. It's supposed to increase the speed at which people sign up. But does it actually, if I made it one-to-one, -one, if I did a one-to-one -one study and I had the same power to detect the same exact difference, do I need 512 people, more people, or less people? I'm doing a one-to-one -one study. I'm looking for the exact same difference between the two arms. More patients necessary or less patients necessary than a two-to-one randomization? Less. Who said less? Yes, less. Less patients are necessary if it's one-to-one. One-to-one is actually uh, the most efficient way to find the difference. However, you'll have to put more of those patients on the control arm. So maybe you don't want to do that. And maybe it's less enticing to the patient. Okay. So in the Cipolucil T group, there's a 22% reduction in the risk of death. Hazard ratio 0.78. That's really good. Okay. And the p-value is 0.03. That's less than 0.05. So that's good too. Okay. And the median survival is 25.8 months versus 21 months. 
And the, and the 36 month survival probability is 31% versus 23%. So if somebody said to you the median survival is only four months, you'd say, but, but at three years, wouldn't you rather have a, a one in three chance of being alive rather than like a one in four chance of being alive? Okay, so that sounds really, really good. Prolonged overall survival, it gets approved. It costs $90,000 per year of therapy, which now looks like a deal, but this was a long time ago. Okay, these are the baseline characteristics of the, of the randomization. 341, 171. Hey, how come there are no p-values here? Should you put a p-value in table one? What does a p-value tell you? The p-value assumes the null, which is that there's, no, that, that there's no difference at all. I guess the reason it doesn't make sense is that a p-value is telling you what, if, if this were due to random chance, what's the probability of seeing this difference or a more extreme difference, if this were due to random chance? But in this case, because you've randomized, it is 100% due to random chance because I have inserted the randomization. I've made it random. So it, the p-value should be one for everything. It's 100% due to random chance, but it's not gonna be one. It, it's kind of, it's misleading in that sense. Um, anyway, but, uh, okay, so this is it. So this is castrate-resistant prostate cancer, metastatic, but asymptomatic in the clinical trial, remember? So you can't have too much disease and you can't be symptomatic from it. Okay, so this is the study design, 512. Here, you get, you get randomized. Here, you get leukapheresis, so they suck out your white blood cells, they make the product, which takes a while, and then they come back and they inject you with the vaccine. In this control arm, you get leukapheresis, and then they go and make the vaccine, but they don't inject you with it. They stick it in the freezer, and they inject you with a saline vaccine, a placebo, okay? And then, when you had progressive disease in this arm, you got whatever they gave for progressive disease prostate cancer at the time of the study. And if you had progressive disease in this arm, you had the option of getting the drug that was frozen as a therapy in a salvage study. And then if you progressed again, you got the standard of care, okay? This was the result. There is no difference in response rate between this drug or placebo. There was no difference in progression-free survival. So the time from here until this point where you got the next drug, there's no difference there. But there's a four-month overall survival difference. Okay, looking pretty good. If you got cipollucyl T in the beginning of the study, 81% of people got some other anti-cancer treatment after the study. If you got placebo, 73% got other anti-cancer therapies. Docetaxel was given to the cipollucyl T group in 60% of people, 57%, versus 50%, a difference of like 7% of people. And the Kaplan-Meier time to docetaxel was 12 months in cipollucyl T and 13.9 months in the placebo group. So why is the placebo group getting 10% less docetaxel and getting it after a two-month delay? They, had, they got this thing taking up their time. So, how do we know? So I think cipollucyl T is that first study, the first study of fundamental efficacy, the 0.4 millimeters of plaque study. But I've crossed everyone over and I don't even know if the drug works. And so now I cannot exclude the fact that survival difference in cipollucyl T in the absence of response rate in PFS is actually due to harm towards the control arm from delay in chemotherapy and an ineffective frozen salvage product. You see, the point here is, how do I know cipollucyl T is making you live longer versus in the control arm you're living shorter because I've wasted a month of your time giving you a frozen vaccine? Let's do another way to do it. I randomize patients. I give them a popsicle. 
I give them a popsicle in this arm, but it has no flavor. It tastes loud. You know, okay. I give them an ice cube. Placebo popsicle. Oh, actually, it should be like a soda pop and a LaCroix. Huh? That's good. Okay. Okay. Then you have progressive disease. In this arm, you get docetaxel. In this arm, you have to drink that. You have to drink that. You have to have. You have to have the popsicle again. You have to have another popsicle. Then you get docetaxel. You see, you could do a study of like something that's totally outside of medicine, useless, and maybe this arm will win because you only get one delay in your care, and here you get two delays in your care. Okay. So back to our table. This was a study in which the fundamental efficacy of cipollucil tea had not been established in any prior study. So we do not want crossover, but crossover occurred. And the randomized trial leading to cipollucil T, two, whatever, 220, oh, that's numbers off, it should be 500. I better correct that. This led to the suggestion that efficacy was not by improving outcomes, but rather because crossover harmed the control group by delaying alternate effective therapy. So new drug, you have crossover, and it's bad. Okay, so now let's talk about the other situation. The experimental drug has already proven benefit in a ladder line of therapy and is standard of care in the ladder line, and we didn't cross people over. Okay, so this is the randomized control trial latitude, where 1,200 people with castrate-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer got ADT plus abiraterone or ADT alone. Okay, and this was the overall survival results. So you all sometimes do this, right? So if you have a patient with high-volume castrate-sensitive prostate cancer, you'll think docetaxel. But if that patient has like maybe modest volume or low volume, castrate sensitive, you might give them abiraterone. And this is the study you'll hang your hat on, which is abiraterone has a better overall survival than placebo. But when this study was conducted, if I had a patient with castrate resistant prostate cancer, either pre or post docetaxel, wouldn't I consider abiraterone? I would. So this is what De Bono and colleagues write in the New England Journal. They say Fizazi report on the latitude study and they, approve on, they report on the stampede trial. These phase three trials randomized 3,000 people and they were designed after abiraterone was proved to prolong survival among patients with advanced prostate cancer. Before these trials were conducted, the standard of care for patients with advanced prostate cancer included sequential androgen suppression with various life-prolonging therapies like taxanes, abiraterone, or Enza. However, the control arms of Stampede and Latitude were not designed to include the current sequential standard of care with life-prolonging treatments. These treatments were not specified in the protocols. This is critical since the majority of men in the control groups died without exposure to abiraterone or enzalutamide. Thus, the drugs used in these control groups were inconsistent with the prevailing standards of care. This has implications for the conclusions of the trial and raises questions regarding whether or not there was a benefit for all trial participants. Discussions between patients and physicians regarding the results of these trials should be made in the context of the above considerations. They are saying that if you had progression on this arm, you didn't get abiraterone in the rest of your care. And that's not what we're doing. So what would, it, what would an arm of the study look like if you got abiraterone at some point in your care? It would be better than this. Will it be all the way as good as this? Who knows? You know, we really don't know the answer to that question. Okay, so now back to my table. This was a situation where crossover is desirable. It was the 0.1 millimeter plaque study. It has already shown benefit in a ladder line of therapy, but we didn't do it. So that is bad. Okay, and there's some examples where we have done it, and there's some examples where we don't really know what happened. Like the one we don't know what happened is like Dur the DERVA study. Actually, I think they have now published like the rate of post-protocol therapy in the DERVA and the follow-up. I have to look at that, update my table. Okay, so does that make sense? 
kind of a tricky concept, which is that I think the cardiology example like makes it very clear, which is that when you do this study, this study where they cross people over 0.5, this is which of those two, latitude or sipilucyl T? Sipilucyl T. This is sipilucyl T. What were they thinking? You've never proven the thing this, and you're crossing everyone over. What are you doing? You're wasting the time. Okay, so, okay, not so good. And then this study, where people reach 0.4 millimeters of plaque and they don't cross you over, this is latitude, right? So I think the cardiovascular example helps remind us like how you would do the trial correctly. Yeah, you can take a really toxic drug. So you don't use this. You ever use vandetinib in medullary thyroid cancer? That's another trial that is a super toxic drug and you cross everyone over. And then, of course, you can really bury safety signals. Because if I have a drug that causes pneumonia, increases your rate of pneumonia a lot and kills some people, if I have everyone on that drug after two months, then I'm, people are getting pneumonias in both arms of the trial, the pneumonia signal washes out. And I just have my PFS signal driving it. I know, it's actually clever. Yeah. Okay, the last thing I'll talk to you, we'll do control arms in the last lecture. Um, what does it take to go from a fixed course to maintenance? What does it take to go from single agent to combo? And what does it take to show a new drug is just as good as? Okay, so you have a, tr so some people give Nevo, and some people give Nevo then Ipi in melanoma. Fair enough? And there's another trial that has Nevo plus Ipi. What is the advantage of Nevo plus Ipi versus Nevo then Ipi? Do you ever have give Nevo Ipi to your patient with melanoma? Yeah. Has anyone here given Nevo Ipi? Yeah, you have. Why? What, what's the justification? Yeah. All right. Well, you don't want to fall into my trap. <laughs> I can see. Uh, so I guess I'd say Nevo plus Ipi versus Nevo alone. Nevo Ipi is more toxic. No dispute. We all agree there. Nevo Ipi versus Nevo alone, the question is, is the combination up front better than the sequence of Nevo then Ipi? And is progression-free survival a reliable way to look at that? Because mm, no, because then you don't include what the benefit of the Ipi might be on the back end. You really need overall survival. You need to know the combination's better. The reason I say that is, once upon a time in the early 1990s, we had doxyrubicin, paclitaxel, and the combination of the two. So this is Nevo, Ipi, and the combination of the two, right? Okay, this is the study. And it's a three-arm randomized control trial. And what does it find? If you, have, if you get one of the drugs, you have a 36% response rate. You have a 34% response rate if you receive the other drug. You have a 50% response rate if you receive both, and that's statistically significant. So responses are deeper. So Nevo plus Ipi has deeper responses than Nevo alone. That's true, that's shown in the Larkin paper in the waterfall plot, okay? The time to treatment failure, which is the PFS of the day, is longer for the combination, eight months versus six months or six months. So your PFS is longer, okay? But how come in breast cancer, the standard of care is sequential chemothera single agent chemotherapy and not combo? And it's because of this. The overall survival in this 1992 study was no difference whether or not you got the combo up front versus a sequence of one to the other and then the other to the, you know, anthracycline to taxane or taxane to anthracycline, okay? So even though responses are deeper, even though PFS is better, there's no OS benefit because you make it all back up on the back end in the sequence, okay? This is what they say. The inability of increasing response rate and time to treatment failure, TTF is like PFS except survival is not a composite primary endpoint, it's a sensor, so it's just a technicality, it's something that's different. Just consider this PFS. The, the inability of increasing response rate and PFS to improve quality of life 
may, respect, may reflect the very loose correlation between such standard markers of efficacy and quality of life. Indeed, a combination regimen might impair rather than improve quality of life because it induces toxicity disproportionate to response. Until agents with true synergy are discovered, sequential chemotherapy represents a reasonable option for patients with metastatic breast cancer. That's how they conclude. And I think this is what the editorialist writes. When asking the question, is A plus B superior to A followed by B, which is what, the what we're asking, in the chemotherapeutic management of metastatic breast cancer, it's critical to be clear about what defines superiority. Many medical oncologists rate regimens based on responses, but our patients tend to care more about whether or not a given treatment will prolong survival or the time until their cancer progresses, rather than whether the treatment will cause a 50% reduction in the sum of the products of the biperpendicular diameter of the measurable tumor. This is still the WHO classification, okay? Patients do not generally ask if their tumors have decreased by 60% or 40%. Perhaps we should care more about the bigger picture ourselves. Of course, response proportion could be a surrogate for quality of life or symptom relief. However, rigorous prospective evaluation of the ECOG 1193 does not demonstrate this parallel. The higher objective response rate for the combination did not translate to improved quality of life, and it didn't translate into improved survival. So we use the sequence. They go on. I would say that in the NEVO-IPI example and the NEVO-alone example, we still don't have an overall survival advantage of NEVO plus IPI versus NEVO then IPI. And then the question is, what percent of the people in that trial get NEVO and actually do get the IPI on the back end? Okay, so that's another question. So here's what they say. In this randomized trial, a similar study, single-agent docetaxel with, versus the combination of docetaxel plus sapecitabine, O'Shaughnessy reported a higher response rate, a longer time to progression, and improved overall survival. This is a different study where they actually did get the overall survival. However, the lack of crossover of sapecitabine in 73% of patients who receive post-study chemotherapy makes the superiority of the doublet uncertain. Could the sequential use of docetaxel first, then sapecitabine at progression have yielded similar overall survival as a combination, perhaps with less toxicity? This is a tenable hypothesis, okay? So I guess what I would say is that in the early 1990s, 20 years ago in oncology, we all accepted that you have to cross people over to standard of care therapies before you make conclusions about survival, uh, which was not done in latitude. And you have to show that if you combine A plus B, deeper response rates and PFS is not important. You need to show overall survival benefit. But by 2019, those rules have changed. The majority of KOLs will recommend that we switch based on deeper response and PFS, even if we don't know the OS. And they have changed the rules of the game. I think those rules changes have all been because, well, that's another story. Okay, so we wrote this paper where we say, if you combine drugs that were previously used sequentially, and if you extend the duration of treatment, which I didn't talk about too much, but for instance, in all these maintenance studies, we're extending the duration of treatment. PFS is not sufficient for extending treatment. For the same reason, it's not sufficient for combining drugs. So like in, in small cell lung cancer, there are some studies that say, how many cycles of carboitope do you give in small cell before you watch them? Four. Why don't you give more? Yeah. We've compared different durations, and we found that you can give more chemo, and you delay progression, but you don't improve overall survival. Okay? Now, why do you give bevacizumab with Fulfox? You do give it. Do you improve overall mortality? No, you don't. The Len Salts paper, you don't. You delay progression. So in one case, you will not extend a treatment merely for a progression benefit in the absence of an OS benefit. But in the other case, you will extend a treatment for progression benefit in the absence of an OS benefit. I think it's another example where the rules have changed over time. And I don't think they've changed for logical principles. I think they've changed because 
the industry influence has gotten much, much more in oncology. And they've changed the rules by which people play. Okay. All right. Next time we'll talk about quality of control arms and Talal's paper. Yes. Uh, see, I guess I love that argument because I think that it's like it's such a good argument because I think it's like the flaw is really obvious. I'll tell you why. <laughs> but they don't see it. Okay. So we got two people. This person has like progression here. This person has progression here, but their overall survival is the same. Okay. Okay. So this so this kind of argument is saying that like look, all things being equal, it's better to be on this curve because there might be something new that comes down the road. Okay? To get something new down the road, two things have to be true. You have to have progressed, usually, because nobody's going to stop a drug until you progress. And you have to not be dead. Okay? So the duration of time to get something new is between progression and death. Okay? So by this own logic, where people are like, oh, you know, um, it's, it's better to have drugs improve PFS even without OS because some revolution will come down. Which person has a bigger window of time to get something new? It's this person with a shorter progression. Because you have to progress to get on the new trial. So actually delaying the progression is going to shrink the window of time you have to get something new. I actually think it cuts the other way. And then the other thing, what they really want to say is that they believe this OS is further out here, so this window is pushed out. That's the only way their like, logic could make sense. But if the OS is really out there, then often you would see that the drug has an OS benefit, but it doesn't always have an OS benefit. The related thing is, some people say that, oh, well, look, metastatic um, cancer, you know, whatever, breast cancer or something, it has a um, long natural history, okay? And, like, you're not going to see the median OS benefit until you get out to three years, right? Okay, but then the other thing is, the thing worth pointing out there is, how, when, do you see, when do you look for an OS benefit? Do you have to wait for the median to be reached? No. In bortezomib versus VMP, this is what the curves look like, and there's an OS benefit, and the median is down here. We know there's an OS benefit long before the median is reached. So it, even the idea that like for cancers with a long natural history, you'll t wait forever for OS, I think that's actually kind of inaccurate. Um, the, the, the best example is Jupiter, that statins trial. In Jupiter study, the CRP study, the overall survival is like 92 versus 90%, and it's positive for OS at 2.3 years, even though they have like 20-year life expectancy. So I think you don't need median to be reached for OS to be shown. The idea that drugs that improve PFS that don't improve OS allow you more opportunity to try something new, I think, is actually a paradox, because it's drugs that don't improve PFS. It's the, it's the gap between progression and survival where you can try something new on a trial. OK, all right. Next time, we'll talk about control arms, and then the last part of this lecture. Oh, thanks. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.